you for this wonderful story, which is not merely an example, but also some great lessons for us that we might know ourselves, that we might know you in a deeper way than ever before. And I pray now that that would be the case for each and every one of us, and that you would pour out your Holy Spirit as your word is proclaimed. Think our thoughts, may my words be yours. Bend our wills, O Lord, to yours, and take every single one of our hearts and set them on fire with love for you and for your son Jesus, because it's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, we're in this series, Emotionally Healthy Discipleship, this winter focusing on emotionally healthy spirituality, loving the Lord. And last week, we looked at the person of Saul in 1 Samuel 15 to start off so we could learn what unhealthy walk with the Lord truly looks like. And we learned from Saul that each and every one of us have an infinite capacity for self-deception. To convince ourselves through self-thought and talk that we're one person where in reality we're not at all. And so Saul used spiritual language, he practiced religiosity, but he wasn't, didn't have a developed or ever a relationship with the Lord. His life didn't show it, and therefore the results are tragic. And so today we're going to turn to his counterpart, David, and we're going to take a step to what emotionally healthy spirituality looks like in the most famous encounter with the genetic mutant giant. Uh, Goliath. Um, and in David, we see not only a young man whose heart is after God, but a person who knows himself and knows God well. Augustine, in his confessions, wrote, How can you draw close to God when you're far from your own self? The great reformer, French reformer, John Calvin, in his, the introduction of the Institutes that he wrote, said this, Our wisdom consists almost entirely of two parts, the knowledge of God and the knowledge of ourselves. But as these are connected together by many ties, it's not easy to determine which of the two precedes and gives birth to another. And so this story that Jerry read for us this morning from 1 Samuel 17 is the most famous story about David. And oftentimes... Pastors and preachers will approach this as Goliath represents your fears. Therefore, you need to take your five smooth stones and slay the giants in your life and banish your fears, right? We've all heard that at one time, probably. But I want to tell you that's a very shallow and it's a deceptive way to read the text. Oh, yeah, there's things we're going to learn from David. There are. There are. But that's not all there is that's going on here. There's a lot more to this text. And what this passage does, it is a passage. How do you deal with the crises of belief that you go through? Because if you're walking obediently with the Lord, you're going to have a crisis of belief. There's, he's going to put you in a position that's going to be fearful even. How do you deal with that? And that's how we're going to learn. We're going to learn from this story the difference between worldly Goliath courage and the way to true courage, all right? The, the, the way of Goliath and worldly courage and the way of true courage. All right, so let's look at false courage, Goliath courage, worldly courage first. 
Uh, you notice I didn't have Jerry read the first part of the book, but you know, you know it probably, but if you don't, uh, I could tell you the first part. You probably know that Israel and, and the uh, Philistines were mortal enemies. And their armies had come out and they line up and they're ready for a big battle. And so one guy comes forward, this giant eight foot tall Goliath, and says, choose a man to have him come down to me. If he's able to fight and kill me, we'll become your subjects. But if you, I overcome him and kill him, you'll become our subjects. And if you go to verse 4 of, ver, of uh, chapter 17, and there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits in a span. That's eight feet tall. <laughs> eight feet. In an age where the typical male height was about five, six. All right. A champion literally is the Hebrew word literally meaning a, a go-between, a man-between. A champion was someone who fought on the behalf of the army. If you're in the army, it's a pretty good idea. You know, you send out your best, I send out my best. Only one guy dies, you know, and, uh, but you better hope your guy wins because if not, you're going to become slaves to the other, other nation. So Goliath come out and challenges these Israelites to come out for a battle for 40 days. Every day, coming out, and we're told in verse 11 of this passage, when Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Why? Well, because of who this guy is, you know. We're told in the text he's this tall, yes, and scholar Robert Alter, Hebrew scholar, who, who really knows how to read these Hebrew passages, he's not just eight feet tall. He's not just intimidating. He also possesses the most highly technological armor of his day. He had a bronze helmet on his head and wore a coat of scale armor weighing 5,000 shekels, which, by the way, is about 125 pounds. 125 pounds of armor, you know. On his legs, he wore bronze greaves and a bronze javelin was slung on his back. His spear shaft was like a weaver's rod and its iron point was about 600 shekels, which is about 20 pounds. 20 pounds. And so Robert Alter points out in this Hebrew text, very seldom in a Hebrew narrative do you have that level of detail. And he says the thematic of this exceptional attention is obvious. Goliath moves into a, this action, an almost grotesquely embodiment of a monument of, of warrior, you know, monument of power. You know, you look at him, he goes, well, that's power. And one of the mistakes that people usually make in reading this is that Goliath represents your fears. And that David represents an inspiring example of how you handle your fears. And Robert Alter says that's not the way to read this passage. David and Goliath are really alternate approaches to heroism, he says. They're not representative of our fears or how to have courage. They're representatives of alternate ways of heroism, all right? And they model it for us. And so how does Goliath 
have his way of heroism. Well, it's the world way. It's the Goliath way. You know, we see over in verse 42 that Jerry read for us. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him. For he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Looks at him and says, you got to be kidding me. All right. Goliath, the Philistines are kind of like the Spartans in the Greek culture. Boys are taught from a young age how to fight and to survive and to kill. He's been fighting from out of the cradle. So he's a skilled warrior, Philistine Green Beret, Navy SEAL, and you send a 16-year-old, can't-even-grow-a-beard boy to him. That's what he's thinking. So he starts his smack talk. You know, come here, I'll give your flesh to the birds and the animals. So here's how Goliath deals with his fear. I'm sure his adrenaline's pumping. I'm sure that he's fired up, but he's fired up like a football player. <laughs> he's building his self-esteem by focusing on his assets, which, which are considerable. But he's also visualizing success and thus banishing his fears. Because you know that's the way the world does it. You say, how so? Well, just go on the Google. You know, you go to Google, up will pop up the University of Minnesota. All these universities will pop up, psychology departments, how to deal with fear. Well, the gophers think this is how you do it, all right? If you want to, the University of Minnesota is the golden gophers, for those of you who don't know, all right? And so, uh, in order, the psychology department at the University of Minnesota says, if you want to uh, confront your fears, you avoid avoidance, promote positivity, find meaning for yourself, get support, go for a walk in nature, promote self-compassion. And, and you know, th those are good things. They're right. They are. They're not bad in and of themselves, but... I clicked on practice positivity, practice gratitude, be kind, connect with others, spend time in nature, savor goodness, visualize. <laughs> visualize. Visualize yourself having success. Put yourself in the position of this fearful moment and visualize yourself being successful. And therefore, when you imagine yourself, you'll have confidence when you approach that kind of situation. It's very similar to what Goliath is doing without the, you're a dog and I'm going to slay you, right? I'll feed, give your bed flesh to the birds. But they're not saying that, but build up your self-esteem, banish your fears, and you say, I can do it. I can get this done. At least in Minnesota, you can get it done. I don't know about Ohio, but in Minnesota, you can. All right? All right? So... What are the problems with this approach? Let's put ourselves in Goliath's boots, all right? First of all, Goliath, he's doing this self-talk. He's visualizing himself killing this kid, and he's not being realistic. You know, he's thinking, I, this kid will never kill me. Really? How do you know that? You know, 
And it's important for us to realize that we do this. Christians have a version of this type of courage. We think to ourselves, if I, okay, I'm going to listen to Jane. I'm going to get in a little church. I'm going to read my Bible. I'm going to pray. I'm going to get involved in ministry. I'm going to grow in the Lord, and nothing bad will ever happen to me. Uh, don't say that to John the Baptist. Don't say that to our Lord, right? Who walked perfectly, you know, with his father. The reason Goliath lost was because his self-esteem was too high. Because he had banished his fears when he should have been afraid. The fact of the matter is, for those of you who aren't aware, the sling was a legit weapon. The Roman army had sling squads. You put four or five guys in a squad with a bag of rocks, and from a distance, they're just as powerful as a bow and arrow. Right? And you can sling that rock up to 60 to 80 miles an hour. I mean, it hit him before he knew it happened. And so, Goliath could visualize the success, but he was out of touch with, with what was before him. To banish your fears in a Goliath way means you, you're going to be unwise. You're going to be, be out of touch with reality. And the other thing that's wrong with this approach is it, 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 it might be good to visualize success and banish your fears in a short-term situation, like your house is on fire. You know, your adrenaline kicks in, you get up in the middle of the night, you're kind of foggy, but you visualize what you have to do. Okay, you get your wife, you get your kids, you get your hound dog, get out, right? That's good, but that won't work over a long period of time. That won't work when the doctor says to you, you know, you've got a fatal disease. We don't know exactly what we're, how we're going to deal with it. For, it's going to take a few months till we even know how to deal with this. How are you going to survive those next three months? You know, with adrenaline? That won't work. Never has worked. Edith Corse Evans was only one of four first-class passengers on the Titanic that went down with the ship. She was a single, wealthy New York socialite, member of an Episcopal church in New York City, because there was a plaque with her name on it. She was a believer, and she gave up her seat to a mother of a lower class with children. The other first-class passengers didn't do that. She did. What made her so courageous? What made her banish her fears to help her do the right thing in spite of her fears? No, my friends, we keep our fear in order to be realistic, right? And what we need is something that will help us go through these fears. And Goliath is an alternate approach. And it's not the way we want to do it as followers of Jesus. So let's look to David. What's true? What is the way to true courage? Well, first off, David did know himself, and he knew God deeply. You know, 
like I said, we're not going to look at this and say only, we'll look at the giants in your life, let's slay them. This isn't about us. All right? If we're going to identify with anybody, we really should identify with the Israelites quaking in their boots. All right, quite honestly. Because I don't know about you, uh, if I had to take on Shaquille O'Neal in a fight, I'm like, I don't think so. Right? Because that's how tall he was. Shaquille's eight feet, right? Eight feet two, something like that. His feet are two of my feet. He's a size 22 shoe. I'm a size 11. His foot is like this big. Yeah, I kid you not. I, I know this. This is Goliath. All right? You look at him. If I'm going to identify with anybody, it's these people saying, uh-uh, no, uh-uh, no, uh-uh. I'm not going to fight this guy. Uh-uh. But what a gift David is to us. It's not that he's a 16-year-old boy and doesn't know better. No, he's been developing his relationship with God as he's been faithfully shepherding his family sheep. The youngest of all his brothers. And what he had to do, the practical things about this are the obstacles he, he went through that you're going to study this week in your books. He had significant obstacles. Number one was his family, his family of origin. I mean, we read about that in verse 28. Now Eliab, his eldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men. Because David's going, who, what is to be done for this guy who, who takes on this giant? And they're telling him. And Eliab doesn't like it. Why have you come down? With whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart. For you've come down to see the battle. And David said, what have I done now? Was it not but a word? All I'm doing is talking, Eliab. Eliab is about 10 years older than he is. So Eliab's got authority over David and respect. But David has always been the runt. He's the youngest of eight brothers. Can you imagine? You know, my eight sons. Oh, Jesse. You know? And the reality is David had to cut through the misunderstanding, the slander. You're a nobody. You're useless, David. Go home. You know? And our family of origin can smother a true following of Christ. Our family has voices into us that we listen to over and above the Holy Spirit and the voice of the Lord through his word. No, my friends, follow God. Listen to him even above our families. Secondly, the obstacle of authority and experience. I mean, you know, he goes before King Saul and says, I'll fight him. And what does Saul say? You're a boy. He's been fighting out of the womb, you know, He's a Green Beret, Navy SEAL, Marine Corps Special Ops, Philistine. You are a shepherd. And don't you love David? David, David says, I, I've been here. I have fought and killed a lion. I, they, he took my sheep. I went after him. <laughs> you know, I have fought and killed a bear. The Lord who protected me through that will protect me through this. Can you see what's going on here? Just, you know, probably fought the bear first. <laughs> you know, then the Lord gave him a lion, which is a little more dangerous than a bear maybe, I guess. You know, he, he's, the Lord's training him. He's training him for this. The Lord's taking me through this. I can fight through this. So Saul goes, okay, 
here's my armor. And the obstacle, now this is the sovereign king. Now David got anointed to be king the chapter before. Read verse 16, all right? So his brothers don't like him now anyway because he got anointed that he's going to be the king. But David doesn't know when. David just wants to be loyal. So here's David offered Saul's armor. Saul's tall, we know. And David's not fully matured, physically a uh, teenager. He says, I don't need these. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go with what works for me. I'm not going to adopt the world's tactics. I'm going to do what the Lord has shown me all along to take on a dangerous situation. And the last obstacle, obviously, is Goliath himself. <laughs> you know, he's using that ancient smack talk, trying to intimidate him. And when we try to walk in an authentic way with Christ, listening to the way people talk down to us, David knows himself, and he knows God. And as we do the same and go deeper into God, get down below the surface of our iceberg, we grow, and we get confident, and we get courage in our crises of belief as well. He's authentic. And so there they are, about probably about 50 yards apart from one another, yelling at each other. And thousands of people behind Goliath and thousands of men behind David. David shouts these immortal words. Verse 45. You come to me with a sword and a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the hosts of the Philistine this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth that all the earth may know that there's a God in Israel and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear for the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our hand. Don't you love that? The battle is the Lord's. He will get the glory. And so the reality, what we see here, is David's passion for the glory of God and for the name of God carried him into this battle despite the obstacles of family, friends, coworkers, neighbors, and opponents. And he will do the same for us as well. But you need to understand that's not what this is all about. Those are great lessons, and that's good. And I could leave it there, but I'm not going to. Why? Because God doesn't give nervous and frightened people an example. He gives nervous and frightened people a champion, a savior. And he does so through substitution and imputation. Think about it. What does the champion do? He's the substitute for the whole army. He steps in not only in the role of fighting on behalf of the army, he's fighting as the whole army behind him. They're with him, but they're not fighting. 
David does not win in spite of his weakness. He wins through his weakness. He wins because of his weakness. (laughs) He knows he's going to be king. But the reality is that sling will work. And David knows it. And that big oaf across the field doesn't even realize it. Because David has done this his whole life. He knows how to use it. He's skilled with it. And it's a weapon and he knows it. But appearing, appearances are that he's weak. And so he doesn't, it's through his weakness that he saves his people, not in spite of it. And he's also a champion, a champion substitute. He's a, he's a weak substitute and savior. He's also a champion substitute. You know, the champ, this is a legal thing that's going on here. There's a legal representation here going on here. The closest thing we have right now is if you're on trial and everything's at stake and you choose a defense attorney. David is the defense attorney for everybody behind him. And what happens if he wins, that win is imputed to you. David was fighting against the Philistines' champion. And God gave for frightened people not an example, but a savior, a champion, who didn't save them through inspiration, as great a story as it is, or emulation. He saved them through substitution and imputation. Hebrews 11, in the hall of faith, you hear all those wonderful heroes, and it says, remember Noah, remember Abraham, remember Moses, remember David. And then the author of Hebrews says, but fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith. Basically, the great Greek word that is used there, look at David, but fix your eyes on Jesus the archegos, which means champion. So let's do that. David is pointing to the real champion. David, though young and weak compared to Goliath, was strong. And Jesus became weak so that we might have fullness of life and everlasting life. He took our punishment that we deserved. So that God can accept us, and that's imputation because of Jesus. Jesus, like David, died not only to save us from uh, death, but not only from physical death, but eternal death. What's our greatest nightmare when you think about it? Dying. Let's talk about your fears. On the cross, Jesus Christ took that ultimate nightmare, the ultimate nightmare, which is to be inalienated from God. He took that ultimate nightmare and did something about it. Purchased our place so that we won't have that nightmare. When we trust in him, it means we're finally, finally safe forever. And when you place your trust in him, that's what it means. You might get sick. You might lose the love of your life. You might lose your job. You might get, you know, 
all kinds of things, but the only you know, debt that can destroy you forever, the debt of sin, has been paid. The only sickness that can ultimately kill you has been healed. Psalm 30, verse 5, there's a wonderful phrase. We should have prayed that psalm this week. But, you know, Thursday afternoon when I discovered these things, Iris has already printed the bulletin, so I'm like, yeah, all right. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. You might think, well, that's just, that's a nice t-shirt. But what does it mean? No, my friends, if you're a believer, if you put your faith in Jesus Christ alone, that's a reality. That's always true. No matter how bad things are right now, joy's coming. Joy's coming. Joy's on the way. When we look at Jesus Christ, what true courage is, Jesus Christ was God who came down for us became subject to human fears, became subject to pain. For the sake of the joy that was set before him, Hebrews 12. Sake of the joy that the set was before him, what was set before him? The cross. Before he came down, he's in the presence of his father. He had that joy set before him for you, for me. He dealt for the sake of the joy, he endured the shame and he dealt with his fears. And there it is. True courage is not an absence of fear. It's a presence of joy amidst the fears. It's the assurance of joy. It's assurance that says, I can handle what I'm going through because no matter what, joy is coming. You see, self-talk and self-assertion Self-confidence is not lasting. What is lasting is self-forgetfulness and to remember what Christ did. Because Jesus Christ, though I'm shaking in my boots, is my champion, my savior. He took everything I deserve and now I know God will never leave me. No matter how lonely I get, he's always with me. No matter how poor I get, he provides for me. No matter how sick I get, it's temporary because joy's on the way. So when you're on the gurney being wheeled into surgery, joy's on the way. When you're a teenager and you're going through an awful season and you're confused, joy's on the way. When you're a parent of a teenager and your teenager's going through an awful season, joy's on the way. No, my friends, we don't just muster it up. Trust in Jesus. Joy's on the way. And we will humble ourselves to know God in this way, know ourselves this way, and know God this way. It's powerful. Samwise Gamgee, another Tolkien-ish. Got to put it in somehow. All right. Sam had saved Frodo, and he recognized he did it all in his own strength. Thinking, I can do it. But this time, the thought pierced him like a shaft, cold and clear, that with all the evil around him, there is a light and high beauty far beyond its reach. Even the shadow is temporary. There is joy coming. It said his situation in Mordor didn't even bother him anymore. He didn't even think about himself. He didn't even think about Frodo. 
because there's joy coming. Yeah, you can have courage through a short season, through bucking it up and firing yourself up and stoicism. But Christian hope says, wait a minute. If this is true, the whole universe is a universe of joy and glory, life, and we're here stuck on this tiny little speck of darkness, and even that darkness is going to be taken away one day. Everything's going to be okay. No matter what happens in my surgery, it'll be okay. My family will be okay. My finances will be okay. My spouse will be okay. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes in the morning. And the more we actually take these truths in, read them, mark them, learn them, and inwardly digest them, and burn them into our lives through times like this, through preaching, through the Lord's Supper, just keep reminding ourselves of these great truths, the more we begin to look more heroic and we actually will be heroic in our individual crises of belief. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you brought us to this place where we are today to know ourselves in order to know you better. And we're about to come to the communion table and we pray that with the Holy Spirit, with the power of your Holy Spirit, we can take more deeply in our hearts the mind and reality of what Jesus did for us on the cross. And that will make us courageous to go out into this world we live in. It will help us deal with our fears of our classmates, our coworkers, our neighborhood friends, wherever we find ourselves. That help us not to think so much about ourselves, but always know that joy is coming. Joy is inevitably coming because Jesus Christ is our champion. And because our faith in him, we are in him. So we pray that no matter what we're going through right now, we will remember all these things. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.